What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success In and Out listeners. We have a very interesting guest today. I first want to give a shout out to Greg Churin, who's an old fraternity brother uh, from the uh, Phi Delta Theta down at uh, Mizzou, and he's down in Arkansas, and uh, he came across and, and, and knows uh, my guest, but there was, um, there was a uh, article that was written in out, out, Outside Business Journal, but it was generated by Andrew Gibbs Dabney, who's the founder CEO of Lives in Designs. And what, what spurred all this was Andrew went to prison uh, in 2011, and he had a, and he'll explain all this, but it, it was caused by a co- colleague's Oxycontin haze of owing some money to some bad people and kind of being at the wrong place, wrong time, all these things hazy, and he robbed a liquor store. Going forward, uh, as we always talk about on this podcast is, you know, what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Well, after prison, uh, you know, how do you adapt? How do you survive? Well, Andrew went out, he got his bachelor's degree, he got married to the love of his life, had two kids, and started a really cool company that he's passionate about. And what happened with this LinkedIn post there was a guy that he was looking to to be an investor to help grow the company, and he backed out. He backed out because uh, he went the background check easy and say, "Hey, I don't, I don't, you know, that's, I'm not good with that." That's what every guy's fear in in the world of business and being an ex felon. What was really interesting about how. Andrew handled this was as he just said, Hey, that's it. I'm not going to let them use that leverage against me anymore. I'm going out front with it. And he posted this really cool, honest, authentic post on LinkedIn. And he talks about the intrepidation of, of about a week going by and not letting that uh, publish button go. And he finally posted it and he got a tidal wave of support. He's got new investors now saying because of what he said in his post, he wants and they want to be investors. That then generated the outside, the outside business journal, wrote a really cool piece. All this came to me through Greg. Greg and I uh, connected, and then I was able to connect with Andrew. Andrew, I'm really happy to have you on and, and you to tell your story. Andrew, Gibbs, Dabney, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the, the nice intro, and I'm really happy to be here. Appreciate it. We, Andrew and I had some issues yesterday. <laughs> this is round two for us. We were trying to do uh, our deal. I usually link up if somebody's not in town through Zoom so we can see each other while we're talking. And, and uh, we couldn't quite get our internet thing to work. But today, all's well. Nothing's ever yeah. easy, right, Andrew? <laughs> 
No, when you need stable internet, that's when it decides to uh, become very unreliable. Yeah, it's like a, a, a bad, mad girlfriend that you used to know, and she comes and ruins the party. Um, so, Andrew, you know, your story is interesting from a lot of different aspects, but take us back a little bit to where you were as a kid. Was it a normal childhood? What were your interests, mom, dad, siblings? How did all that shake out for you? Yeah, and I think there is some tie to, you know, what I ended up doing in my, my story uh, from a childhood because I was actually born with my feet severely pigeon-toed. Um, so as opposed to, look, you know, feet going forward slightly out, my feet were actually pigeon-toed to the point where they were facing backwards. Um, and at the time and the location I was in, the, the treatment for that was, was surgery. So um, resetting the bones, casting, and then as, as you grow um, – you know, assuming you were born with this, you have to do that periodically every really year to two years until you're, you know, out of that, that's that insane growth cycle of childhood. So from zero or two weeks to 12, I had eight surgeries on both feet. Did they have to cast you, Andrew, on that? Like every time you did that, was it a, like a, almost like a broken casting type thing that that went on? Yeah, I I was actually casted to my hips both times. So it was, you know, my leg was in kind of a bent position. You can't see my legs, but, uh, all, cast all the way up to the hips on both legs. And, um, you know, lots of time in the, in the hospital. And I obviously don't remember the very, the first few surgeries, but as I became an older child and, um, spent a lot of time in the children's hospital, specifically down in New Orleans and in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, other than that though, I mean, do you think I, I was wondering, in, Andrew, on that type of thing, because you as a kid, that's not usually what kids have to go through, all those different surgeries. Do you think that indirectly created some kind of inner, I don't know, strength or something that, you know, usually kids don't have to do that. And you went through and you and you're very humble about the fact of how you went through it and don't remember a lot of the pain in that. But it's still a lot of surgeries that kids don't have to go through. But it seems to me like you'd have to build up some kind of something that I can get through this. You know, this is another surgery. I'm going to have to go through it. I'm going to have to get through it and and, and recover and, and all those different things that have to go on with that. Yeah, I mean, in retro, in retrospect, looking back on it, I think you know there's some there's some truth to that. At the time, you know, I was just a kid who wanted to ride my bike and play basketball. And, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time. I don't remember a single time dwelling that there was a surgery coming up. I'm sure, I knew. Um, yeah. And then while I was there, it was just you know playing 64 in the hospital bed do what I can until I'm back out of those casts and can, can go do things that kids do. Um, I grew up after two year, you know, two years old, we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas and my family lived by Wilson park, which is this really great big outdoor park. And, um, you know, my memories of childhood were getting up from school and, and getting on my bike and riding down to the park and building forts and playing in the Creek and, and all of that punctuated by these times when I wasn't doing that, obviously, cause I was casted, but, you know, as a kid, kids are just resilient, I think. Um, and I'm sure there was some, there's some lasting effect of that, you know, in my psyche that I haven't really analyzed or, or thought much about, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting when it comes to my individual path and, and, uh, issue with prescription drugs was, you know, there's, your brain works in, in certain ways. And the more you do certain actions, consume certain chemicals, your brain becomes more efficient at those things. And so as a kid, I was, you know, prescribed morphine and was obviously in the hospital on, on pain medication for all these surgeries all through childhood. And 
I think it has something to do with later on in college when I became um, uh, more explorative in my, you know, substance use, I found opiates and it was just kind of an immediate comfort with that substance. And, and uh, I think that has something to do with my eventual addiction to it. Probably felt familiar. I, you know, and I think the other thing that was familiar to you is, you know, one of the things you talk about in your LinkedIn and, and the article is to find your passion. It seems like your passion was finding that park and doing all those outdoor things because it, it, now you're this founder of this company that lives in designs and it's all about the outdoors. And I, I think that's cool that, you know, a lot of people will go their whole life and not find their passion. And with you, Andrew, you went through a lot of different uh, maps to get to where you are now, but your journey's been back to your passion. And, you know, one of the things that you say I think is so good is, is my past is not my present, but it brought me here. Love that. Yeah, I think that's that's crucial for for me specifically. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, as, as I shared this LinkedIn post, it, I didn't have necessarily a big altruistic goal with it. It was, like you said, I wanted to bring my past to my present. I wanted to do it on my terms. Um, but I think that's true of a lot of people that have any sort of criminal or conviction background is that that experience formed who they are today, but it's not necessarily who they are. And so it's hard to have something that was such a big event in someone's life and specifically in my life, such so big and such a big experience that you uh, then kind of closet or yeah. table or put away and then don't, don't speak about. Um, because while it's not the thing that you are today, it obviously had a big effect on you and you wouldn't really do that about other uh, events in your life or things just because they're, they're more socially acceptable to talk about. And so I agree. Um, and and one, I, I think the other thing, Andrew, about that is that, and I think you probably felt this also is somehow it's taking back a little bit of that power of, of your story so that your story can't be used against you. You own it and you're telling it the way that your narrative and those people who are saying, ah, oh, we can't do this because I think he was hiding the fact that he went to prison. No, I'm telling you what happened. I'm telling you my story. And then all of a sudden, these people get behind the underdog of the story and say, yes, this guy deserves a second chance. I think that happens so little uh, because of the courage that it takes because you're, you hitting the publish button was, does this kill my company? Does it kill everything that I've built and believe and love and, and have passion for, or does it free me? And, you know, a lot of what we talk about on all these different stories is how do you get through your nightmare to finally set yourself free? A lot of it is, is stepping into the fear. A lot of it is, is going ahead and hitting that publish button. And, you know, I've, let's, I mean, I, I've, I've jumped ahead of us, but going back into what brought you to that point? Um, you go in, you're a kid, your, your, your parents, I think you had said split up at some point. And so you had, uh, did they, did they live on opposite sides of that park? Yeah. So I think when I was six years old, my parents uh, split up, but I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't nasty or anything like that. And we, they ended up moving to both sides, different sides of the same park. Um, and so that made it, you know, I could kind of traverse sure. back and forth and spend time with my dad and my mom. And, um, and all of that. And yeah, so that happened good, good when I was very young. Good relationships with mom, dad. Yeah. Um, good, good with both. And I, and I split time. I was, I think most of my smaller childhood 
I split time between my mom and my dad's uh, at different time, but not like split week usually, but like one parent for a couple of years and the other one for the next couple of years. And, um, but we were in the same school district and, no, that's cool. you know, all those things. And I, st- and I stayed in Fayetteville all through my childhood and that, in that same area of the town, which was near downtown, near the university and, and very, uh, you know, very traversable for a young kid. So actually I had a bike and that was my ticket to freedom. And, yeah. um, you know, rode around the park, rode around campus, rode around downtown. And that was kind of my stomping grounds. Yeah. Your childhood um, sounds very similar to mine. I, and I, I had a Creek Pearson Creek and I had that whole world of building forts and we had a, a undeveloped land, you know, beside it was that, that I, the crazy thing about that is I think that we've lost some of that too, Andrew, with our kids you know, everything's so scheduled and, you know, you spend an hour at this soccer thing and everybody brings treats and then you go over here and it's, it's scheduled. But that free time for kids to just gone riding their bike and then they come back when it's time to eat, you know, it's it's not like that anymore. And I think we lost a little bit of that. And it was it was probably my generation that messed it up because it's it's uh, it's it's a different it's a different world that the kids grow up in now. Yeah. You know, we'll see, uh, you know, I have now two kids, two boys, one's two and a half and one's about to be one year old. And, um, we, we're lucky to live in an area and a little plug for Northwest Arkansas, but we moved from Fayetteville to Bentonville recently and, and either one would be great, but, um, where we are has a culture around outdoors and mountain biking. And, um, so there's organized mountain biking in the schools and I'm not, you know, if the kids don't end up being into that, that's totally fine. But one goal I have as a, as a parent is to try to recreate some of that opportunity yeah. that I had to be near, like you said, kind of undeveloped open outdoor spaces that are still within walking distance of home and, and safe. Yeah. Um, so they can get that sense of freedom in, in a more, you know, in a controlled fashion, yeah. you're not, you know, no, you're not just sending them out of the streets. So that would be, I think bringing that back in is, is huge if you're able to do it. So Andrew, going back into where you were, you got out of high school, went to college, um, and I think that's kind of where things, as as sometimes always does, you know, kids go, you know, it's like a free ticket to paradise. You know, you're, you've got total freedom. Nobody's around. Parents aren't there. How did, how did this world change for you? Or, or did you get with just a group of friends that were all kind of experimenting and, and living life and you got too far into the wrong path? Essentially, um, you know, I got to college and that's a whole wide world of, of freedom and opportunity and, and you can take it many different directions. Um, unfortunately, I was, uh, or, you know, fortunately or not, it's hard to look back and judge. Uh, I was inquisitive and, and open to new experiences and, and new substances. And at some point during freshman year, someone offered me some Oxycontin. And like I said, it was almost an immediate, just uh, friendly feeling, something that felt natural and, and um, you know, increased confidence and all these things that everybody says about opiates that they do. Um, I had no real, I, in my head at that time as a freshman, I didn't link up what I knew inherently about something like heroin, you know, growing up, like stay away from heroin. I didn't really equate that to this pharmaceutical, this pill, you know, that was, sure. that was handed to me. I don't think and, most people do. Um, yeah. I think, you know, now there's so much been covered so much and, and unfortunately there's such a terrible, uh, you know, epidemic of, of addiction around opiates and it's much more dangerous now. I won't get into that. But I'm more lucky that I kind of got in and got out before um, what's going on with basically mislabeled fentanyl and things that, right. you know, one dose and, and all these it's things. Killing. So anyway, I, um, through, through freshman year, you know, was, was casual with it, I guess, as much as you could. And 
Um, but eventually something happens, I think to everybody that, that for most people that, you know, take that past the first use is, you know, what was a Friday and Saturday night thing is then all of a sudden a Sunday morning hangover cure is then, you know, what you, you're just doing it on Sunday afternoon. And what, because what was recreation now becomes dependence. And instead of taking something for fun, you're taking it to, you know, make breakfast or, you know, go to the store and go shopping or go to the bank because you actually can't physically operate without it. And there wasn't a lot of time between, you know, first recreational use and full on, um, physical and mental dependence on the substance. And, um, that, you know, takes us pretty much through several years of college. I, I switched from a business major to a philosophy major, um, which I really enjoyed my time in class, but I was a poor student. Um, I wasn't showing up for obvious reasons, but I was, I was reading the books and um, that actually had a pretty big lasting impact on me and kind of what's on our shelf mirror yeah. over here is, is from that. But, you know, ended up, I was, you know, dismissed from U of A and um, had a place to live, but wasn't doing well. Um, I was really down on weight. I, you know, was, I had a habit, a drug habit that was several hundred dollars a day just to get by and um, no real income. So in that situation, I ended up owing people that you shouldn't owe money, a lot of money and wasn't thinking straight. And, you know, the actual act itself, I know more about from reading the witness testimony from the cashier than I do of myself. Like my memories, you know, of that are kind of like scenes from a movie that you kind of flash through your head and almost like a dream. Um, yeah. And on top of, on top of Oxycontin, I, I would often, um, you know, mix the use with, with other drugs like, like Xanax. Um, and that one has a really bad reputation of, of having a serious effect on your short term memory. And um, in that particular haze, I, you know, made the decision at some point to go and rob a liquor store. Um, it was very amateur. Um, I was, you know, wearing a motorcycle helmet. I think I was browsing the wine section for over 15 minutes, like presumably working up the courage, but I don't remember that real thought process. Um, asked for what was in the register, not demanded. Uh, I think I said, please. I left on a motorcycle and, you know, just the whole thing was just, was amateur, was stupid, um, was, was nonviolent. And I think a lot of that is why I ended up getting the second chance that I got. Um, the facts of the case supported that you really young were, I- idiot yeah. on drugs, yeah. you know, not a sophisticated criminal or someone with, 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 uh, menace or, or malice in their heart. Um, and I regret it. Um, well, Andrew, I was going to ask you, how did, uh, you took off on this motorcycle knowing, I mean, I'm sure the adrenaline rush was, oh my God, I just robbed a liquor store, which you'd never done before. Uh, what did you go and do after that? Um, I don't really recall the ride home. I don't really recall what I did that night. Uh, what I did the next day was was bought some drugs, you know, and went camping. So that was, that was kind of my default. I've, throughout all of this, I've been an outdoor enthusiast, so whether a drug addict or not. Um, I was, was actually out. Escape. Yeah. Right. And so I was actually out in the woods and had set up camp and was sitting by the fire. And I actually, I said, I'd sell service where I was. And someone called me and said, Hey, did you rob a liquor store? Um, uh, in the moment I was like, no. And that kind of speaks to the, the haze of this, the way these drugs treat people and people. It's hard to, yeah. you seem to know this if someone that your loved one is in this state, they're not, they're not looking back on what they did and, and framing things they're not recollecting. They're not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not processing emotions in that moment. I didn't remember it. 
like I didn't realize why, uh, you know, how I'd gotten to the point where I was. And I was like, no. And then I thought, and I was like, oh, shit. And then they said, hey, I see your picture in the paper. And um, that got me to pack up camp and head back to town and, and start down the path of, of clearing this thing up. So did it come? I, I can't remember the, how the story went. If they came to you and and busted in and said, you know, and arrested you because you, you, they had you on camera, or did you go to them and say, hey, I've I got to clear this up. I've. I think I robbed a liquor store. What what happened on that? So it's somewhere in between. So I, I went to the at eight a.m. when they opened. I went to the police department the next day and and walked in and said, "Hey, my picture's in the paper. I'm about to clear this up." I don't okay. know what my game plan was at that time. I had also, you know, as I said, to function normally, you have to be a little bit uh, yeah. you have, to have some substance use. So I was at that point, yes, and uh, you know, didn't have a game plan. But as soon as I walked in, they did the good cop, bad cop thing, really cold room. Let's get you some breakfast. They'll, you know, just started asking me all these questions. And I realized pretty quickly I needed a lawyer. Um, you know, obviously people, you know, I did the thing, right. So like, I, and I, and I realized that in that moment I had, I did have some clarity and was like, okay, I, I, I needed to get some help. Um, so I was actually allowed to leave and walk out without an admission of anything at that point with, you know, with my lawyer, I phone called him and, but really what I think they were doing was trying to see what I was going to do. Um, so I went home and by, I don't know, at some point that afternoon, uh, my house was raided. So, you know, knocked on the door with a, so you got a little bit of both. With shotguns and yeah. SWAT gear and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I got a little bit of both and they, they arrested me at that point. What, what that was Andrew, a you know, uh, fairly traumatic experience. I'm sure it was. So can you, can you walk us through that? Cause I mean, you, that, that would have been something that you'd never happened in your lifetime. What, was it busted? I mean, it wasn't, they, they didn't bust the door down. They knocked and I saw them and I said, and what the only thing that was actually the most traumatic to me at that, at that point was my dog. Yeah. Um, very friendly, but obviously when you have 15 people in full body armor yeah. coming in, she was in the corner barking and I was just terrified that yeah. they would shoot the dog. So that was actually the more traumatic part was, was saying, Hey, Hey, hey let me control her. She's nice. She's a lab. Like she's not going to hurt anybody. So let me get her and put her like out back. Yeah. And so they did. And, uh, you know, from there on, I was, I was incarcerated, um, for, you know, starting that day, I had three days in jail, um, Washington County jail. Um, uh, my, my parents had made the decision to make arrangements while I was there and not let me out. I think it was a smart decision on their part and hard for me at the time. I was actually in a walking boot from a previous motorcycle crash. And so I was in 23 hour lockdown in jail, uh, detoxing cold Turkey. And, uh, that's a, you know, very unpleasant experience. Um, you know, with opiates, you can do that and not have a physical risk. It's just terrible, terrible, terrible feeling, but you're not going to die from it. You can't pull somebody off of a strong alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and, and just cold turkey and it's dangerous. But, um, so I went through that part in jail and then, um, you and, know, and, jail, and, and as people might or might not jail, jail is, is really the bottom of the bottom of the dirt pile, um, of lockup, you know, there, there's prison and people are figuring out how to make a life for themselves in that world. But jail, I mean, you get every single walking person who's either, you know, got a D up for a DWI or they just killed somebody and all that happens right there. And everybody's right there. How, how did you, how did you feel or, or adapt um, to that world going in? Because that's a it's a very unsteady world that you're entering when you do that. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't I didn't have any experience with that really, and I 
my first jail experience was was solitary like i said because i was because i had a walking boot and i had an injured foot mm-hmm. uh, i wasn't put into general population i was putting into lock a lockdown wing so you know one cell one person 23 hours one hour out to make a phone call or whatever to kind of walk around but i couldn't walk and so um more than anything i was just i was just suffering through withdrawals in that those three days and not being able to eat not being able to sleep you know skin crawling the whole the whole shebang and um so i didn't have to luckily i wasn't doing that in general population with a bunch of other people yeah i'm sure there would have been some sympathy among the inmates but you know <laughs> yeah, who knows? There is. there's usually uh, a couple people who want to help you out exactly. well there's usually dozens of people going through the same thing yeah. you know like the jail and, and prison is more of a treatment for drug and mental health issues than, than criminal issues and so there's this, i wouldn't have been the only one in that same boat uh, so but i was i was alone through that so so Andrew, what were the next steps with this whole thing? Your parents obviously find out about this. Uh, what what is their reaction? Were they? I guess I should ask. Were Were they aware that you were in the way that you were before it happened? Had you had talks, or did they were they trying to help, or was it was it you on your own on your own path, and they weren't really you were living two separate lives. Uh, it was more of the latter. I mean, they knew something was wrong. Yeah. You know, I failed out of school and I was obviously looked unhealthy and they, uh, you know, they, they, didn't, they could, they didn't know exactly what it was, but they knew something was going Yeah. On, right. Yeah. And so, and there were, there were, you know, there wasn't intervention or any sort of thing like that. Cause they didn't know what it was. And I was, um, you know, functioning enough to pull it together for family events. Although you just can't hide that kind of stuff. You right. look terrible. You, yeah. you don't think straight, you don't talk right. And, and things like that. So, they made arrangements for me to go to rehab. Um, I went down to Austin for a 90 day inpatient when they yeah, made bail. My bail wasn't astronomical. Um, but made bail after three days, um, went down to Austin for the next three months and, uh, went to an inpatient rehab. And, and this is where, you know, as you, as you mentioned, like, or as I talked about, like I, my experience, I think can potentially help people, but my experience is not the same experience that most people in, in the system have. Like, most people don't have the ability to go to a three month rehab and have the family support to pay for it. And so I was lucky enough and, and continue to be lucky enough to have that support to give me, to help facilitate the second chance. So I had a good lawyer, yeah. um, went to, went to a good rehab and I made the choice. Um, you know, like I said, I'd already been three days in to a cold Turkey detox. And when you go to rehab, they offer you, you, know, you can go through a medicated detox to kind of bring you down softly. So you don't have to go through that, all that pain. And I made the choice to forego the, the seven day chemical detox and go straight into rehab. And the, my thought process at the time, and this is when things started to become clear, even though it was still much of a haze was, you know, there's consequences to what I'm doing. I'm looking at it at the time I was looking at 40, you know, I was charged with aggravated robbery. That's 40 years to life class Y felony. So right. I was looking at minimum 40. Um, and that's I made a lot the to choice about. to to feel it right. I wanted to feel the full detox. I wanted to feel the physical effects that this substance had on my body. Because I'd never given, I had withdrawals before, but I'd always managed it with with medication, right? So, right. Um, I wanted to really feel it and and have that be you know the combination of the consequences I was looking at for my actions plus the physical effects of what I was doing. I wanted to basically hit myself with as much yeah. reality as I possibly could so that when it comes time to have those decisions and those thoughts of, you know, could I go down this road again? Could I, could I try, you know, and it's, it's no, 
Yeah. The answer is no for me on that because it's, it's of where it led into your memory um, base. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, to, to kind of further along, like I was in rehab, I took it seriously. I was at a good rehab with, a, I really liked my counselor and, and small group and, um, did a lot of, obviously you do a lot of self-discovery. Um, I engaged in like the AA 12 step program, but more importantly, I think it was just engaging and figuring out who I was and what my goals were. And in that moment and in those moments when I was looking at best case scenario, restarting my life over at about now. So like in my early mid thirties, which is when I would have gotten out on good behavior on a 40 year uh, state sentence. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what I'm going to spend eight to 10 years in prison. What can I do during that time? How can I set myself up to restart my life again at 32 or 33 and not waste what is still long life. Right. So I was having this thought of like, you know, you know, you burn 10 years, but really burns a bad word. Like you said, people in prison figure out how to make a life there. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. Right. And it's, it's a terrible thing. I think I wrote this in the post. It's like, it's completely awful. It takes away your freedom. Yeah. It does all these things, but also, I mean, people try to make the best of it. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of, you try to create a comfortable zone for yourself. You, you have a, a small group of people you interact with. And in my experience in prison, I should say it's up front was, was not typical either. I was only in general population for a week. Um, before I went to a boot camp, so I went from three months in jail at Washington County mm-hmm. to a week in general population. And really, I say general population for the first four or five. I can't remember it's four or five, but the first several days of that was solitary again and processing while they were waiting to put me at my unit. Yeah. Um, but I got transferred out to a uh, boot camp program, and that was a big part of my plea. So we're getting a little bit ahead, but like the uh, the rehab. Um, plus I did as much community service. I volunteered through that as you could. They facilitate it, but you can kind of go above and beyond. Um, I checked out of rehab and into a sober house and continue, continued to engage in AA and, um, community service. And, and at the time, you know, was, was calling all family, friends and people that knew me for who I was and saying, Hey, will you write me a letter? Um, will you talk about me and say, you know, this this person deserves, you know, they call them character letters. And Mm -hmm. so I, I gathered up almost 20 of those from, from some people in the community, including law enforcement, friends of the family, people that knew me for who I was and would vouch. And so we went back to the judge, you know, with my lawyer and said, look, you know, first offense, um, you know, I've gotten clean and sober. I've been on the right path now for, for, I think it was four or five months at that point. Um, here's all these character letters. Here's my plan for when I get out, I'm going to land at my parents' house. I'm going to get back into school. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to restart my life. And, and, and the judge, you know, once again, like I think this is a privileged position of what I look like and who I am and the, and the, the ability to, to present this kind of case did the right thing in that moment. And my, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think that he looked at the facts and said, this is obviously very serious. You're going to do some time. He gave me a 10 year, he pled it down to theft of property, um, different class of felony. Um, it was 20 years with 10 years suspended. And so in Arkansas at the time, if you had 10 years for a nonviolent crime, which I was nonviolent, you can go to boot camp. Um, so I did go to boot camp, went through that process for another three months. It was 105 days, um, which was military discipline, yelling in your face, drill, boredom, but none of the fun, no, no useful skills taught, you know, no, so let's no talk about Andrew. I've heard about that boot camp thing, but so, when you go to boot camp, can you describe? Can you walk us into it? Uh, like, is it a dormitory? Uh, you know, are you? 
do you are you given tasks to do every day? Because I, I know prison, but so, the prison boot camp. Yeah, what, can you walk us inside that? Sure. So, I mean, the, the setting is, is Tucker Prison in Arkansas near England, which is down in the Delta, or like kind of at the start of the Delta in the Flatlands, so okay. in the middle of summer too. So it's hot. It's hot. It's muggy. Um, we've got a big barracks, so just a big metal building. It does have air conditioner. Um, so it wasn't like we were sitting there in 110 degree heat, but you know, and it's a, it's a big wide room with, I think about a, let's say 120 to 130 cots yeah. all lined up in rows. You know, imagine the size of half of like 50 yards wide, yeah. maybe 30 yards deep, um, with rows of cots and then a command center in the middle kind of with a glass where all the guards, mm-hmm. you know, the, the drill instructors, um, set. So it's military style. Um, it had four drill instructors at any given time and they ran through in different shifts, you know, and then were organized into flights. So of 120 or so people, I think there was five flights, groups of, uh, inmates that were in, I think I was B flight. I remember. And so you're like, that's your, that's your unit. Um, so it's, it's just discipline and, uh, building patience really The, 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 there wasn't like a, it depended on the shift. Some shifts were really active of drill instructors that really cared. Like there was one that like you could tell really wanted was in there for rehabilitation and they wanted to, they wanted to beat some sense into these kids. Not, not usually physically, but, <laughs> um, and, and would actually give some, some drill, you do PT you know, work out, um, you do, uh, education on, on certain topics, like little classes and stuff like that. But that was only one of the three. The other two were not really there for rehabilitation. I think they were there for a paycheck. Yeah. Um, some of them weren't very far from their active duty. So all the drill instructors were, were actual military members. It was an air force boot camp, So we followed the air force drill manual, but we had drill instructors from the Marines, the army, the air force, the Navy. Um, and some of them, were not there for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, so they would kind of power trip. And so we woke up at three thirty AM every day and whitey tidy stood up and counted, you know, everybody goes to the bathroom at the same time. You shower and shifts together, you know, you do, you eat, you can't, you know, you, you, if you want to say anything, you say, uh, you do a sir sandwich, which is like from the movies, what they actually do in military and prison, this particular prison boot camp. So you say, sir, you can say, I, you had to refer to yourself as this inmate. You say, sir, this inmate, uh, request to utilize the latrine, sir. You know, and they'd say, wait, we're doing it in 20 minutes, sit back down. So there was some days where it was drill and PT and actual activities. Um, and there was more days than that where it was all waking hours, except for going to the mess hall. We're sitting on a cot with nothing you did. And you were allowed like three photos. You could have the Bible and a drill manual, but you couldn't read them except for certain times. And you'd get a major in uh, major disciplinary, which you get three and you're out, you get a major disciplinary if you fall asleep. Wow. So it was a lot of time just sitting there exactly like I am now with no backrest for, yeah. for three months, just how did staring, you, thinking like yeah. mentally. Um, how did you handle that? Andrew, what was your, cause I, you, you had just gotten something that had to have been like, you felt like you'd won the lottery you get one from, you know, possibly looking at 40 years, 20 years to 10, then you get this prison boot camp. So you're, I know that your mind had to have been spinning that, you know, there's all kinds of different things. I was thinking eight to 10 years. Now I'm thinking if I can get through this boot camp, what I can do to restart. But when you were going through that, how were you, did you have strategies to get through it or were you just doing it? So, I mean, when I was in rehab, I, I, 
I got into meditation. Um, one of the guys I was there with was very spiritual and we went to some, some monastery type uh, environments and practice medica- meditation. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for him that I was like rooming with him at rehab and he brought me into that world and exposed me to it because those skills of, of being able to kind of watch your thoughts or even transport yourself in some way to another place, which I mean, it kind of happens when, when you're in that situation with that much time to think your, your mind will wander. Sure. You will, you will find ways to occupy your, your mind. And I'm not much of a worrier. And I think, I don't know if it's, I'm just wired a little bit wrong. I don't worry about things that much, which just also can lead to things like what I did. Right. I'm not like ruminating on the future uh, and worrying about what could happen. And so at that time, like I was doing various things in, in my head to keep awake. Uh, I remember, doing things repeatedly an exercise I would go through would be to imagine myself back in my house making something to eat. So I would like imagine myself on the couch and I would in excruciating detail, like put myself, I'd tell myself what I was wearing. I'd get up, I'd look around the room I'd identify everything. I'd go to the refrigerator, I'd open it. I'd imagine what was in the fridge. I'd imagine making a sandwich and the the, the details of it. Like is the bread chicken, see if the bread's bad and putting turkey on it. And then, you know, toasting the bun, you know, the, the bread and all that kind of stuff. And just stuff like that. Lots of planning, right? Yeah. Lots of like, okay, but you can't write anything down in that situation. You have like a little bit of time to write a letter uh, once a day, but you can't like make notes about plans and have a grand design. It's all in your head. So, interesting. you know, it was just dealing with boredom. I think I wrote in the post, like, you know, boredom's really in your head. You yeah. can entertain yourself. You, know, you can true. occupy your mind. And, um, it's true. And that's, I think, did, did you feel like that you made any connections in there when you were going through that, that just kind of raw boot camp world? Were there like minded so people in there? There were. And so when you get out on, in Arkansas on this particular program, which unfortunately I think is, is not funded anymore, I'm trying to, I need to find that out. Um, but you go on a special parole. It's more intense. You go to more meetings with your parole officer. You go to, you do more drug tests. You do more, all that kind of stuff. And you're, expressly forbidden from having any contact with people that you were locked up with. Um, but that being said, I, and, I, and I, I didn't afterwards, but there were people that I was locked up with all the way, people that I went from Washington County jail to all the way to prison to boot camp with. There was two people particularly that I knew that were highly intelligent. They were nothing. They had no back. They were not from a similar background to me, but they were just really great people. Mm-hmm. Um, I had more conversations on, on stuff that I learned about a philosophy with a particular guy in jail all with the boot camp when we could. Um, and he, he was just brilliant. Uh, Don't you think that's he, probably I, one of the bigger misconceptions, Andrew? Like I, and I noticed that you had written about this in your, in your post is that there's some really smart people. Uh, maybe they weren't doing something legal, but they were dealing with, you know, sales distribution commissions, you know, the, the whole, uh, network of what you have to do to build a company. Uh, if, you know, if you could plug those people into society on the legal side, there's so much that they can offer because their mind is already wired intelligently to make those things work. And I think that's where there's, it's a, it gets somewhat short sighted by saying, okay, well, those people were in prison or they sold drugs or they did this, but man, I, I, I ran across uh, quite a few people that were uh, smart people. Yeah. And it's just a lot of it comes from opportunities of really smart people that are in a bad situation. Yeah. They don't have the ability to, to kind of uh, work their way through the legal system the way that it can be done. And like I said, we, I, I was fortunate for this. Um, you know, they're just stuck there. And 
there's wasted talent and wasted opportunity. And a lot of times all they need is a chance or a place to land. Cause that's the other thing is like, when you get out of prison, I was able to go to my, my, my dad's house and stay and have food and shelter and, and a supportive environment. Right. A lot of people get picked up by somebody who hands them a joint, Yeah. you know, and, and I'm not saying like weed's going to send you back to prison, but like, that's the environment they're going back right into. Right the environment that lived in there in the first they're place. They're going to have a hard time, you know, finding a place to live. Um, people yeah, won't rent to the ex-felons. They won't you know, give a job um, to the ex-felons. So there's, and I, that's the other thing I noticed in your post, you brought a lot of people out that wanted to talk about what they did for ex-felons. You know, that this, mm-hmm. I, I remember there was one guy that said, we, we make it a point in our company to hire ex-felons and we don't ask about their background. There was a lot of people that came forward and I think, you know, by doing what you did with your post, it allows people to express themselves on things that they're trying to do to help. Whereas if it's not ever expressed out there, it all kind of is under uh, under the covers and you don't really know about it. But I want to go back to, Andrew, with going through getting close to knowing you're getting out. What's going through your head? I mean, as it, you know, everybody knows this inherently, I think, understandably, but time is, is relative. It's very true. So like your experience of time has a lot to do with your situation and 105 days in that situation felt like so much longer than it yeah. was. And so as you get closer to the end, there's some things that happen. Like you, when you get out of prison, there's things you have to do. There's forms you have to fill out. There's like, you have to test yourself for like HIV and all these things, you know, like there's like, there's a process to get out mm-hmm. of prison. So like those things started and that's when it started to feel really real, even though it was like 15 days out, right? Two days. And then, really what I was worried about is I had had um, just by nature of being, you know, even on good behavior and boot camp, I had several of those major disciplinaries, right? I had, I had to go to review with three to say, please don't kick me out of boot camp. Cause if you get three, you're kicked out, you go back to general population, you serve all your time. You don't get a second chance at this boot camp thing. Okay. And so I was already on like, don't screw up. And I go, there were, none of it was bad. It was like, I was washing the windows cause I was told to on the outside of the barracks as part of the chores but then they called called count and I was, they called count and I was outside the building, which is like a serious oh, violation. Yeah. Counts, you know, I was ordered, I was ordered to do it. <laughs> right. So I was ordered to do it, but the superior officer yeah. of the guy who ordered it to me didn't. So I got him. It's, it's stuff like that. I had yeah. smiled in, in drill. Cause the guy next to me was like singing like Creed on the, on the, like the chant that what we call the cadence yeah. song. Yeah. He was just making it a big show and I smiled and got a major disappointment. So my point was I was already on like thin ice to get kicked out and there's two weeks left. So I was more thinking about like, don't breathe wrong. Right. Don't fart. Don't fart yeah. when a drill instructor walks by. Yeah. Cause that actually can get you in trouble. Yeah, like, there's just dumb drill. stuff. <laughs> so like, you know, I was just like, okay, do not screw it up. Don't mess it up. Like this two more weeks. You can do this. Um, and, and there's probably an experience I've never really talked to anybody about this, but I'm sure it's, it's common is that like when I was getting out, like being discharged, you go through this whole process, right? You get your clothes back. You, my parents actually, I didn't have clothes because I came from jail, but like my parents brought me stuff to put on, I put on street clothes for the first time, which is, which just felt amazing. Even it's though it was the feeling. weirdest selection of clothes my parents could have brought me, like things I hadn't worn since like <laughs> eighth grade. But anyway, I was, I was in street clothes and I, it did not become real until we were off the prison ground. Yeah. Like I walked out the first gate, I'm like, okay, they could still, for still some reason, me. I didn't know what, but I was, I was sure they were going to pull me back in for some clerical error or something and be like, you're yeah. going to do it. So the second gate, and then we got like watching the parking lot. I'm like, Oh my God, but there's still a tower right there. You know, get in the car. It wasn't until we drove all the way off to the prison farm, all the way off the farm and onto a highway that I like took a breath out. Yeah. Like it didn't feel real until I was off 
prison property. Yeah. Like it was just, it felt like at any point they could just bring me back. Um, so anyway, well, let's talk yeah, about, it was, it was a, let's talk about Andrew, you get back into life. Um, you've done your, your time at this boot camp, and I've heard about these boot camps. There's nothing easy about these boot camps, and they, they make it hard on purpose because they're giving you less time, so they're going to see, they're going to haze you to see if you can make it. Um, mm-hmm. But you, it, it seems like that you didn't want to waste any time when you got out. What was what was going through your mind uh, as far as your plan and what you were doing and what you were thinking at that point? Yeah, I, uh, you know, part of what had happened to me over the course of that time was a lot of self-reflection and, and planning. And, and it actually dives a lot into the brand that I've built and the, the values that were built on, but I didn't know it at the time. And it was this idea that, um, which is a know, Swedish is name, short. right? A Swedish, uh, it stands yeah, for, um, I've, I wrote it down. It stands for one who lives, it lives, lives in Utah and it stands for one who lives life fully. There and it is. That, there it you is. know, and this idea that like, I didn't want to waste time. Like time is precious. It's the only thing you can't get back you know, life is short. And so as you, you look back and you get this advice from people and you, you know, in prison, you get lots of advice from people, that, sure. whether it's solicited or not. Um, and you always hear, you know, you never look back and, and miss the, like when you're basically when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to think about the things you owned. You're going to think about the people you knew and the experiences you had. And so right. to me, it was, I took that to heart and thought, you know, I want to, you can't get through life, not, acquiring things or, or managing things, but I wanted to have an experience filled life in the outdoors with friends and with family. You know, I wanted to get my education. I wanted to have knowledge in my head and be able to keep on, you know, using my mind and, and basically the, the experiences over stuff. And this is what became lives in, but at the time it was just, okay, I got to get this, this back on track and, and be able to set up the best life I can. And, you know, considering what I've done. Um, and so I got out and went to, uh, I was at my, my, my dad's, like I said, and I, uh, got accepted or right? I enrolled at the local community college. Um, so I did a couple semesters there and uh, got straight A's in community college, got some more credits because I'd already had like 80 some odd credits from undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, went there, uh, earned some, I did some just cause I wanted to, I did like wilderness first, or first responder training and stuff like that. Cause I wanted to get my wilderness first responder license. And, That's cool. Um, but I got good enough grades to get back into, I readmitted, to University of Arkansas, had to go to the you know the uh, committee for readmission, and actually this is the first time that I had to explain my criminal background, right? Because that was something that came up on that as background check. So I had to you know first time explaining. Um, I wanted to get an apartment, so I had a, you know had a friend in Fayetteville who was ex Air you know, well wait Air Force yeah and uh, you know officer going to officer training school and seemed like a good person to really kind of live with at that point. And we got an apartment. And I had to explain it again you know, camp on the application. Um, and a lot of times they and, won't rent to you because of that. You know, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And we, and we weren't, a, we weren't at a, a super nice apartment complex. So I think they were okay. What's funny about that though, Andrew is, is that we talk about this some on this show is that the ex felon is the last breed of individuals in the United States that it's legal to discriminate against. Almost everyone else, you cannot, it's illegal to discriminate, but you can legally discriminate against an ex-felon and whether it's living or job or whatever. And that's just something that you have to work with and you have to have the story and the passion and whatever to get through that so that they feel that you're different. Right. And, and, and you're right. And it's, 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 it's a very complex 
problem, right? Like there's reasons that those rules exist and yeah. that, you know, some of them are to protect people. But when you consider that the United States incarcerates more people than anywhere in the world, you realize how many people are wandering are around affected. with a felony record. You can't think that all of them are terrible people and deserve this, right? Like they're, they're, and then once again, like my, uh, my experience isn't necessarily representative. If I didn't look like I did and if it wasn't too clean cut, you know, white guys walking in, to, to tell the story, it may have been a different experience right. than someone else getting out of prison trying to get an apartment that doesn't look right. like me or talk like me and things mm-hmm. like that. So I just, I think it can't be overstated that like, I don't think that it was, I don't diminish anything I did. Like there's personal choice and people with a lot of privilege end up in prison all the time or just, or just screwed up and not doing anything with their life. So there has to be your personal like drive and motivation to get that done. But also combined with, you know, having the support. Yeah. Uh, that some of you don't have, like it, it made my story possible. So I don't want to harp on that, but it just, as people want to tell my story as part of like a diversity, equity and inclusion conversation, I always want to point out, like, uh, it's great if we can shed awareness on what you just said, mm-hmm. that ex felons can be discriminated against, that there should be more opportunity, that it shouldn't be set up to put someone back in prison because it is. Yeah, That's great. But I don't want my story to be told to a bunch of people that grew up in, you know, the worst conditions in Chicago, you know, drop right back into those yeah. conditions and say, look at this guy. He made it. Look at, you know, use totally me as an it. example because they're going to, they're not going to get it. They're not going to say, Oh, I'm just like him. I can do that too. Right. But like I said, if we can, if we can, if my story can eliminate more people that would listen at the policy level that people are going through this and, and running into these roadblocks, and it's having a serious effect on like economic output for your region. Things like basically, if you can tell a story in ways that it can be heard by people yeah. that that have the levers of control, then that's where I'm comfortable, you know, telling my story and trying to make it more than than just mine. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I told my story like for me, you know, I told my story because I wanted this to be out on my terms. Um, I wanted people to know so I didn't feel like I was hiding it yeah. from some somebody or a group of people or the business community. And um, if there's a good side effect to that, then that that makes me happy. Oh, I think there's a great side effect to that. I think there's there's two different things to it, Andrew. I think one is is it gives you your power back to your own story. Uh, you're telling the story the way you want to tell it, and the narrative is not written for you of how someone else has already decided that they're going to couch that story. The way that you tell it, the passion that you tell it with, the courage that comes out that you're humble, but you're the humility and and the willingness to hit rock bottom and make a choice. You know, so many people hit rock bottom and that just becomes the fetal position they stay in. And then there's other people that hit rock bottom and say, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to get better. I'm going to, I'm going to do the things that I need to do to make things happen for me. Those are things that people are looking for that a lot of our society has lost because it's kind of become a victim society. I think the more we hear stories of people taking their situation and no one's perfect. How do you take that situation and walk through the fears to get where you want to be? And that's that's common across the thread. You, you don't you can be and I've had a lot of different people on this show. It doesn't matter where you came from. Everybody wants to know that there's a glimmer of hope if they just try and do the best they can to get through. And I think that's that's what it's inspiring to me to hear your story. I grasp onto immediately. And the other thing is is that there's so many people out there that have a, a hiccup, a mistake, something in their background, uh, 
and if it's if, if it's a felony, uh, you have to carry that with you regardless. It doesn't matter what you do in the rest of your life. You will always have that. It's you know I always say when you get as an ex felon, you are carrying a life sentence with you regardless. You just have to learn how to work with it. And that's what I think is really cool about your story is if you've, you've worked with it. And so you, you go to college, um, you do well. I know that you find the love of your life, but I don't know how you did that. How did that come about? So, yeah. And, and, you know, my wife is, 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 is much more private than I am. So I like to, you know, respect her, <laughs> her, her privacy, you know, as much as, as possible in situations like this, but we were dating it before. So okay. we were dating in college and at this time we had broken up when things got really bad. So yeah. The period of time when I got really bad and, and ended up, you know, doing what I did and going to prison, we were not together as a, as a couple. We were, right. you know, we still wrote letters every once in a while. And, and, and when I was locked up, but you know, for her own mental health, she had to, sure. she had to let me go. Yeah. Um, now when I, when I got out and was on this path, um, as I was at university of Arkansas, I was going back for reg- recreation sports management. I, my, my goal at the time was to be a mountain manager. I wanted to move to like Keystone or Breckenridge and be the person in charge of all mountain operations. That was like, my, cool. that like if I could have any job, you know, cause I figured out, you know, they make, you know, well over six figures, you're in an admin, you know, yeah. office job, but your, your job is to get out and be on the mountain. Too. Exactly. So like that to me was like pinnacle. It still is a great, that, I wouldn't it's a great idea a different path <laughs> going there, but that was in my head is like, I'm going to go to this. This is my end goal. I'm going to get, rec management. I'm going to you know move out West. I'm going to be a lifty for a while and work on the ski lifts and just work my way up with a degree that, um, so that was my plan. Um, along that way, a, a friend that I, one of my old roommates at the time actually was working as a co-founder for a company called Fayette Chill out of Fayetteville, which is this like lifestyle outdoor apparel brand, uh, mainly branded t-shirts, but we expanded into all sorts of, you know, full on outdoor clothing. And I was working at the university of Arkansas in the bookstore doing receiving shipping and receiving kind of end on deliveries and stuff. So I had some experience and he's like, they need, like, we need someone to come and work in our warehouse and help pick and pack orders. And so I took that opportunity, um, full-time job with a salary, that kind of stuff. I never had that, yeah. um, in a startup, never been in that situation. Um, and, uh, couldn't do full-time school and full-time working at the same time. So I actually transferred from university of Arkansas to John Brown university for a night school program. Um, it is just, it was for managers, um, two-year program that if you had over 60 hours of credit, you could do this two-year program in night school and management. So it's organizational management undergrad. Um, it's kind of like an executive MBA program sure. sort of, but for yeah. undergrad and, uh, I ended up finishing, you know, getting my undergrad in, uh, organizational management from JBU, uh, while working through Fayette Chill. Um, and at that point I went from kind of warehouse to warehouse manager to, did web and logistics like website to be the COO. And then I eventually uh, served as a CEO of that company for about a year and a half ish about a year, year and a half of COO doing kind of running most of the moving parts. Um, one of the, the, the guy who actually founded it um, outfitted a sprinter van to live in with his, with his girlfriend at the time or uh, maybe fiance, I think it was a girlfriend. And then, uh, and they're, they're married now, but they took a trip around the United States for, about a year and a half. And right. I managed the company while wow. he did that. Wow. Um, so it, through that point, we, you know, my, my wife and I, she was living in Little Rock and um, doing, doing corporate work. And we started talking again and started dating again, basically restarting a relationship. And yeah. that's a very tender process. And um, she decided to move back up to North Arkansas and take another job up here in a big company up here. And 
um, we got married and uh, bought a house and I was working full time, you know, and, and doing all this and, and started that, you know, I'd already started the process, but that's when, you know, things became very clear that this was in the past and we could build something on top of yeah of this that wasn't, wasn't damaged. And, and I still had lots of friends in Fayetteville. Like I said, like I wasn't actually like a sleazy person. I, mean, I was, you can't be a great person when you go through all that, but I wasn't an asshole. Right. You know, I still had friends that I, I didn't burn all my bridges. You know, there's obviously, I changed my phone number when I got out and there was a whole group of people I did not contact again, yeah. but there was a whole group of people from college that were from high school, you know, that I still knew and still really close with to this day. And so we had a social group and you know, still do. And we're only 20 minutes North of, of Fayetteville now. Yeah. Been in yeah. Um, yeah. So when you got started with the idea of lives in, did, um, because you had been in a startup, I guess that probably helped you understand what the steps were that needed to happen for you to become a founder CEO of your own brand. It it was like an MBA, you know, and, and it's all my dad told me when I was working there. He's like, it doesn't matter if you don't get paid a lot, you're getting a real world MBA, yeah. right? Like there's nothing better than, than being a part of a business that's growing um, to learn how to do it on your own terms. And, and a lot of that experience led to learnings that, that influence what I'm doing today. And it's just like, you know, you learn about hiring people and you learn about, you know, how to onboard employees and you learn about, you know, how to set up a structure and, and responsibilities and roles. And cause you've I've seen it go wrong, right? You just, you do the wrong things yeah. several times. You kind of have an idea about how to do it right. And we've done all of our own new wrong things that lives in <laughs> based on new path, but we've avoided a lot of the things that I think that we went through there that were just young company problems, but everybody has, um, but I was able to kind of ride along and, um, deal with and manage, but without the added burden of being the, you know, the owner. And I, and I have a lot of empathy towards the, that individual now, um, having now going through it myself and being on the, the kind of side of where everything's on you, where I was CEO for a group of owners, you know, it's, it's somewhat different, you know, it's nuanced, but it's a different level of responsibility. So what do you see with your company? Cause you guys are kind of up and coming and outdoors and, um, uh, just continue to grow. Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, one thing I, I learned and, and it maybe it has something to do with my experience through all the legal stuff too, is that the foundation you build upon is the most important thing. Yeah. So, you know, when I started this, it was very much like I, you know, raised some capital and it was, I'm not going to go push sales this year. It was, I'm going to build a foundation. We're going to build the brand, yeah. the, the visual Culture. brand, but also more importantly, like what it means, and why are we doing what we're doing and build a really solid product and, and wait until that product is good before we go to launch so that we don't ruin the launch with a subpar product. And because, yeah. you know, where we're going and what our plan is, is to be the best in the industry. Um, not, second best, not, yeah. um, you know, not, not middle market or, or lower pack. I mean, so the way you build something for that kind of, you know, reputation is different. And so I spent a lot of time on the, on the foundation and, um, and, and so uh, now we're growing fast. That foundation's strong. And I feel like we're, we, we're can, ready to, no, well, we can, are, we're putting gas on it. So. I can tell that, that things are moving quick and the, uh, the things that lives in, they, they've got apparel. What, what all, what all can somebody get from lives in? So we're, we're, you know, we're outdoor apparel. Uh, we've really focused on pants, pants and shorts. So, and that's, we went through some, some, which are cool looking by the way, if you want to go to had the, the, uh, the site is called lives in designs. Lives in, yeah. You can just go to lives in.com. L I B S N. It'll redirect you there. Yeah. Um, cool stuff though. So yeah, I mean like, 
we do we do pants we do and our whole goal and everything about lives in is based on this idea of, of, of creating products for this this lives guitar this person who lives life fully and so like if you are going to chase an experience filled life in the outdoors you know what are what are you wearing what are you buying what are the things that facilitate that that kind of life and that's the clothes we make and so we started with pants more from a passion project for me because um, i just didn't find i couldn't have pants that that fit well that kind of did what i wanted them to do at the same time and so we focused on a really tailored fit um, good, t- durable materials, very sustainable. So everything we do is is designed to be repaired. It's designed to be repairable. It's designed to be tough. It's all organic cotton, recycled polyester, recycled nylon. So everything is environmentally friendly. Um, we don't do plastic packaging. It's all roll packed with paper. Um, we do everything we can to build a company the right way yeah. and build a product and then care for that product all the way to its end of life. So like we just basically had this idea that once we sell it to you, it's not your, just not your problem anymore. It's, it's our problem like we we created that we brought yeah. it into the world and we used the resources to do it we took the time and i love that the energy so we want to see it have a long service life um and once again this is all kind of back to this philosophy of, of not not creating low quality things because you know waste is you know the biggest issue we have like it's just i don't political or not like we're, we're kind of destroying our home mm-hmm. um and so it's not a lot about like what something's made out of in my mind, like sustainability is usually wrapped up in whether it's recycled or organic or whatever. It's did that product, did anybody need it in the first place? Did something <laughs> else do it just as well. Right. And then is it made to last? Like you can make something out of like, you know, the, uh, this is, I don't know to say it, just like out of the world's worst materials. But if it lasts for a lifetime and does its job well, then that's good. Hell yeah. It's the most sustainable thing you could possibly make yeah. because it lasted. And, and, and then there's also a cultural side of this and so we, we we look for customers and people that have already made this choice mm-hmm. and so that's the other side of it you have to kind of choose to not fill that niche yeah yeah to, to not be so consumption driven and you have to consume that's what i'm getting at there's yeah. nuance to this like you have to consume to be somebody you have to own things you have to, and so it's just like if you're going to you swallow that pill what can we do next yeah. right like you have to consume you have to do things so how can you do it in such a way that and i like your idea you can be the best at yeah. it with with uh, and own that category, don't try to just fit yep. in and say that, that we'll be the mid level outdoor people. We're just going to be the best and own that category, and knowing that we do what we do because this is why we do it. I like that. I like yeah, that. And it, you know, there's there, there's there's some, I guess, hubris there, uh, but it's in a the my my point is like we're not going to be the best now. Like I think we make the best pants in the industry now, yeah. but we're not like it takes, it takes time. It takes Absolutely. credibility. It takes at bats and iteration. But I think the foundation that I was talking about, this idea of how we build and how we create yeah. and how we operate as a company is designed to lead us but to you be can't, the best one day. What you're saying, right? Andrew, you, know, you, you can't, can't, you can't be the best unless you set out to, to uh, have that as a foundation of what, what you're building to, because right. everybody then buys into that and believes in what you're doing because that's the path, the the best of whatever that is. Everybody starts to live that. That's, that's the feel. There's so many different, it's a, it's a mindset too. You know, it's the Mm -hmm. old, uh, you know, Henry Ford quote, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. That's also how you build a company. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, how you feel, how you build the foundation, what those people feel, how you reward those people, what they feel about you and how you feel about them. All those things make that foundation of the company of whatever that is. And you can walk into any company and feel that vibe. You either feel that or you don't. And it's because somebody's worked on it. And that's, uh, it's not easy. 
If it was, there'd be a lot of companies just blowing it up and being the best. Well, no, it's it, it's not easy, and, and not everybody has to do it either, right? Like, it's yeah. just for me personally, if I was gonna, I knew, I know myself well enough to know that if I'm gonna maintain passion for something, if I'm gonna maintain intellectual interest and want to really keep trying, I need to be really interested in it. Yes, you know, and I need to, I need to, and I need to love it. Yep. And by building it this way, I I love the thing we're building, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to ever lose that. And, but it kind of gets back to what I was saying before. Not everybody needs to do that. Not everybody has to, like a lot of people are in a situation where you just need to make ends meet for your family and you may, you know, do a low priced, you know, bottom market plumbing service for your region and price yourself lower and kind of, you know, yeah. work at that same kind of level. But like it's honorable, right? So like you don't so have you to own that for all sorts of things. Yeah. It's just, you own that and, and, and you don't have to be great. I just, you know, for people that make a product and this is, and I'm involved in the entrepreneurship community here and, and, and other places, you know, talk to a lot of young people and they want to make something. And it's like, the only challenge I say is like, just, just don't make something that's copied. Yeah. Make something, but do it unique, you know, yeah. no matter stand what it out. is, it can be low market, it can be mid market. Just, just, just don't make it. All you're doing out. is, Going to a manufacturer and finding a product that's previously made and putting your logo on it and relying on a brand and your brand is the only thing that's differentiated. Yeah. That's when I kind of lose interest in helping somebody because they're not trying to actually add something. They're trying to just kind of right. make a buck off something that didn't need to be existing. Uh, so anyway, I'm on, kind of on a soapbox now, but it's, uh, <laughs> I you know, it. no, I love, I don't want to be pompous my, about it. <laughs> no, you're speaking you know? my language. And it, like you said, if somebody wants to be in a mid-level and own that category, there's a whole world for that. There's, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to make yourself into the brand you want to be, the culture you want to be, um, and, and own that category. It just depends on where you want to fit into the market. That's that's yep. what that what's that's what makes the world go around and capitalism works. Um, Andrew, this has been a really cool conversation. I, I was thinking looking at all these different things along your journey, I always ask everybody, you know, what, what after they look back on this journey that they've been on, what do you think's your biggest takeaway that you share to the listeners through what you've gone through? You know, I, that's a good question. I th- I think I'm lucky. Um, and it isn't maybe like, obviously I, 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 what I mean by that is that I did what I did. No one got hurt. Um, I got off in the best possible way that you could having done something like that and being guilty of it. Right. So like, and that the gravity of it was so serious in that, like I said, looking down the barrel of 40 years at the minimum or potentially life in prison, was serious enough for me to realize that was rock bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Like to, that I had a rock bottom that I was able to be in a situation where I could realize that and make real change off of it without anybody getting hurt, without losing so much of my life and without losing all my friends and family and relationships. And so like, I think I'm lucky that I did something so serious and it didn't turn out as bad as it could have. Mm-hmm. Cause I could have done, you know, what I think about what scares me is that like, if I didn't get caught, yeah, like if I was more sophisticated, if I planned that better, if I was a, you know, and like what would have happened next if I didn't face any repercussions for what I did. So I'm lucky that I did it, did it once, no one got hurt. And it was serious enough to, to enact, you know, kind of uh, facilitate the kind of change that I needed. Yeah. I think that's really, that's thought provoking. And I think it also leads us back to sometimes people hitting rock bottom can find their soul, find themselves, and that becomes everything that they wanted to be. They just 
had to get to that point where that decision was made and, and your decision was, I'm going to do whatever I've got to do to make this work for me. And you did. And you started stepping out of it. And now, I mean, I'm looking at, you know, what you've been able to accomplish and the, and the cool brand that you're creating. Um, the just avalanche of support that you've had uh, stepping out, controlling your story, your narrative. Just a lot of really cool stuff, Andrew. And I feel I feel lucky I got a chance to interview you because I think this, this story is going to resonate with a lot of people out there that um, deal with that what we're talking about, you know, what do you do when you hit it and how do you step through it? How do you survive and how do you adapt? And you've done that and nothing's ever over either. Is it? I mean, you always have to continue to walk and and deal with whatever today presents you, but the tools of your past you can use. And that's, that's what you continue to do is, you you know, your, your past doesn't define you, but it certainly helps you get through the rest of whatever we're going through. Yeah. And that, you know, I guess another lesson is, is perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of hit on it. It's like when you've, when you've kind of been through all this, when you've seen how bad it can be, it makes day-to-day challenges and especially in business and things like that, just not seem as, as drastic as drastic. Yeah, like things, things can be so much worse. So and much. I worse. think the perspective there helps a little I, bit. I wear these, uh, these three leather bands that I had a guy that made them for me when I was at Leavenworth and, and I, I mean, nobody really knows this. I don't even talk about it. It's just you and I talk and Andrew with, with all these other people. But um, I look down sometimes on my wrist and think, no, today's not as bad as I think it is. This is just a day that I just need to get and grit it and make it because there's been worse days. And, you know, there's things that, you know, you, you don't think about it all the time, but it is a piece of you. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that I think it also steadies you, grounds you, and, and keeps you uh, human and definitely humble. Because you, once you go through an experience like this, it definitely humbles you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> there's a whole another conversation on on the the prison intake system and what it does to you and all that kind of stuff. Oh so, yeah, man, there's, there's humbling there's, there's humbling experiences there. If we don't need to get into it. No, yeah, but you, you're problem. you yeah. are so right. It's 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 a it's a system they use that you can feel it coming off of you. You can feel your freedom, like just it's like it peels off of you as you walk through the intake. <laughs> It's, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> very humbling. Yeah. Andrew. Hey man, this was so cool. I want to tell everybody while we're out here, um, I'll do a little self-promotion. If you need a book out there, I've got one nightmare success, loyalty, betrayal, life behind bars, and finally getting free a memoir. That's me. Check it out on Amazon or bonds, Barnes and Noble. Love you guys on uh, social media, uh, with, uh, the likes comments, Hey, they're doing a thing with, with Apple. If you can give me a review, go down, scroll down the page, click on write a review. It really helps the show on promoting with Apple. Uh, if you want to find out more about what's going on with me, where I'm speaking, what I'm doing, brentcasty.com, leave me a message. And as I used to say when I was uh, communicating back and forth with my uh, TrueLink emails while I was at Leavenworth, Signing off. Stay strong, and I'll do the same. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Nightmare success in and out. Thanks.